Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? That's a haunting question. fact is, our God is mighty to save. And our God does not deal with the human race in a generic fashion. That is, our God does not have a, a plan, a design, and a will for the human race that is going to be effective for most people. You know, that's the theory of American commerce today. You know, there was a time when there was a shoemaker in the village, and you went in, and he measured your feet. He made a little mold of your feet, and he built shoes for you, and he kept that mold, and any time you needed shoes, you went and you got the, that pair of shoes. That's why most people walked around barefoot, I suppose, but it was, it was expensive. But clothes were made individually. And then somebody figured out, if we mass-produce clothes that will fit most people, we can make a lot of money. And it works like a charm for everybody except me. You know? They didn't have me in mind when they designed the normal shape of the human body and clothing. And so uh, I'm kind of left out. God's plan for the human race is not like that. He has a tailor-made, absolutely perfectly suited design for every life. And our God is mighty to save, absolutely able. You see, and it doesn't matter where you are this morning in your life. It doesn't matter where you're, you're walking in the heights and things are going well and the lights are shining bright and, and everything is just happening perfectly for you or whether you're walking down in the depths and everything's falling apart and you feel like you're all alone in the midst of a crowd. It doesn't matter where you are. God's love and grace is perfectly suited for your life. Absolutely. Our God is mighty to save. You see, sometimes we doubt that. Uh, we doubt that because we think that, yes, what the Bible says is true for most people. But the Bible didn't know about what goes on in my head and in my heart. The Bible doesn't know about the temptations that I suffer and that I go through. Oh, oh, some people notice the things that I do, but even they don't see the things that go through my mind and the things that tempt me and draw me and the kinds of things that, that swirl around inside of me. If they only knew they wouldn't love me, God wouldn't love me. You know, there was that moment when uh, the religious leaders dragged a woman and threw her down on the ground in front of Jesus. And they said, Jesus, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. Now, this woman on the ground, she's not hearing that as a kind of Sunday school lesson lecture. She's not hearing this as a kind of theological disposition. All she knows is that she is there at the feet of this great prophet and she feels so wrong and sin-laden and ashamed and guilty. Yes, Jesus talked about the love of the Father, but now he knows what I did. I don't see how he could ever love me after I've done this thing. The leader said, Jesus, 
You know she should die. Deep in her heart, she knew she was dying every moment they spoke. They said, Jesus, the law demands that we do away with somebody who's this evil and this corrupt and this sinful. And in her heart, she'd grown up surrounded by religious people, and she knew they were right. She knew that God didn't love people like her. Jesus turned to the religious leaders, and he, and he said, Guys, I want the one of you who has no sin to pick up a stone and throw it at her. Now, here's the miracle-working power of God. Because when Jesus spoke, he spoke in such a way that they couldn't play the mind games that most of us play. They couldn't rationalize away their sin. They couldn't rationalize away their temptation. They knew that when Jesus said, if you have no sin, you qualify to throw the stone. They knew and they fell under the conviction of Christ. They thought the woman should be under conviction. They fell under conviction. And one by one, they left until there was no one left but the woman and Jesus. Jesus said, where are those who condemn you? I mean, really, where are the ones who condemn you? Who are they? These guys who came along and they thought that, that God would be so impressed with their religion that their condemnation of you would be the same as God's? Where are those who condemn you? She said, There's, there aren't any. And in the greatest sermon this woman ever heard, because it was spoken directly to her heart, Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. I don't condemn you. Rise, get up. Life starts in you. It's not over. You thought it was destroyed. You, you thought you'd never get up again. Rise, get up, go, sin no more. I mean, it's, it's not like this wasn't serious, but understand the grace of God has forgiven you. And in that moment, she knew something we longed to know. And that is that God, our God, is mighty to save. And he seeks, he saves those who are lost. We get so uh, caught up in our doubts and our, and our wonderings, you know, can, can God really love somebody that much? I know he can love other people that much, but can he love me really that much? We begin to doubt the grace of God and wonder about the grace of God. We, we doubt the grace of God because of the frailty and the weakness of, of just the physical body and the flesh. I mean, uh, we, we go through life and we're torn by our appetites and our desires and so many different directions and we cry out to God time after time, you know, just take this desire from me, take this, 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 this want from me, take, take my inclinations from me and, 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 and we still wrestle with them and we think God must not care, he must not, not be here and we, we don't understand that God is working with us through those things and, and in those things to bring us victory over those things. But we begin to doubt because in the weakness of the flesh we can't just buck up and do better. We can't just decide that, well, starting today, I'm going to be perfect. The weakness of the flesh causes us to doubt because we think that God wants us to do a lot of stuff in order to be accepted by him, and we can never do enough to make ourselves 
acceptable, much less to think that God would accept us. The frailty of the human heart causes us to doubt because we're wounded and sad and there, there are experiences in life that are so devastating that they hardly have names. There, there are those experiences in life when, when you just are, are sensing that there's nowhere left to go for comfort at all. Those moments when you're in the pit, when the shadow of deep darkness is falling over you and you're walking through that valley of darkness, there seems to be no end. And we begin to wonder, the Bible says God is light, I don't see the light. Maybe he's light for our other people. Maybe I'm the one person in the entire universe that God has decided that I am too far gone. I'm some kind of lost cause and God's light can't shine in my life. We begin to doubt because the heart is wounded and broken. And we wonder where God is. We doubt many times because of the shallowness of our thinking in our minds. And um, a lot of us discover this in the sophomore year of college or university. And, and we start to ask those brilliant questions like nobody else ever knew to ask about the problem of evil and how can there be a God if there's evil? We think we're the first ones to discover that. And we begin to doubt because after all, we're academic. We begin to doubt God because of our pride. The way that works is we're so proud of ourselves. You know, God is just lucky to have me, you know. And I'm doing like really well. I mean, I, I'm certainly not doing as badly as others. You remember Jesus talked about the, the Pharisee and the tax collector. Uh, the King James Bible calls him a publican. Actually, he had been a publican and quit, and then he became a publican again. And so he was known as a... Pull the pin, count three, throw the, the laugh grenade. But anyway, the, the Pharisee and the publican uh, went, went in the temple to pray, and, and the, the, the Pharisee said, God, here I am. I know you're glad to see me. You know, I just thank you, God, that I am not like other people. I'm not an extortionist. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not a sinner. God, just between you and me, we know I'm not like that tax collector over there. I didn't sell out my country. I'm not a turncoat. I'm not a traitor. God, you and me, we're just doing great right here. You know, that kind of pride and, and boasting. Jesus said the tax collector wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven. At that time, the way to pray was to stand up, look up, open eyes, hands open, and pray. That's why we kneel, fold our hands, bow our heads, and close our eyes. But this tax collector wouldn't even look at God. He said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said, I'll tell you who really understood the grace of God in that moment. It was this tax collector, this sinner, who came to understand the absolute poverty of his life and the rebellion of his heart, came to understand the inability of his life to ever do what he needed to do and ought to do and just called out for the grace and the mercy of God. He says, that's the one who went down justified. See, but in that pride, we will begin to doubt because ultimately you will stumble and ultimately you will fall. 
You know, you put your pride in your religion, you put your pride in your church membership, you put your pride in your theological education, and it won't do you a lick of good when you stumble and you fall, and you find yourself in the dust at the feet of Jesus with people all around you ready to throw rocks at you, and you know your life is over. You begin to wonder. See, we all have doubts, and we need that assurance. We need that blessed assurance that Jesus is mine. That's the foretaste. That's, that's the, the beginning uh, feasting on the banquet of glory that is divine. So we all have these doubts and these wonderings. And I think that's something of what Paul may have been getting at in the letter to the Galatians. We've been looking at it for I don't know how many long, months now. And, and you, you just recall quickly the situation that, that uh, the Galatian uh, Christians had become believers and they had accepted Christ into their lives. And then some other people came in and said, you know, that, 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 that's really fine, but you need the Jewish religion. You need tradition. You need to observe circumcision, and that was just a, a shorthand way of saying you need to keep the whole law. You need to keep the Sabbath laws and the diet laws and the, and the laws regarding fellowship and who you can talk to and, and, and you can't talk to. You, you need to be more heavily in, invested in, in, in the meaning of the temple and the sacrifices. You've got to regulate your, law, your life according to the Torah. And so, yeah, yeah, this thing that Paul talked about believing in Jesus, that's good, but you need to be a child of Abraham, following in the religion of the Jewish tradition. You must be doing that. And what are you going to do if you're a Galilee, a, a Galilee, Galatian a believer? You're listening to this. These guys, you know, they seem like they know what they're doing. And the first thing you begin to do is you begin to doubt yourself. And you begin to doubt your salvation and you begin to doubt the grace of God. Because they're holding up a standard of what you ought to do. And you know good and well you can't do it all. And you can't do enough. And you can't really attain to that level of righteousness that they're talking about and saying that God requires before he accepts you and he believes you and, 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 and loves you. And so um, the, these, these Galatian Christians, are, they're surrounded with this kind of generating doubt about the grace of God in their lives. I think that's why Paul wrote. That's why he wrote so strongly in, in chapter 1. He said, look, anybody tells you it's something other than grace, that's not the gospel. Don't, don't listen. Let that be anathema to you. Anyone tries to tell you that you need to have some kind of works and achievement before God will love you, that's not the gospel. Paul was writing about the authentic gospel that had been true all along, always by the grace of God, beginning in the Old Testament, throughout the pages of the history of the, of the Old Covenant people, into the church. It's always been grace, Paul wrote, over and over again. It's grace, and when you're, you're, you're set free by that grace of God, you're set free into living a life in the Holy Spirit, not bound to the flesh, not bound to the works of, 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 of human strength, but you're set free to live in the Holy Spirit of God. So Paul's writing this letter to the Galatians in many ways to say, you know, here's your assurance. Here's your blessed assurance. Our God, mighty to save. And he saves by grace. You remember what he wrote in Ephesians? Chapter 2, starting verse 8. By grace you have been saved through faith. He said, by 
the grace of God, just, just what he has done. You know, we, we, we oftentimes think of the word grace as, as um, meaning the word gift. Um, and, and there's a lot to that. If you were going to talk about a gift in, in the Greek language, you would use the word grace, the word family. But even that word gift is too weak a word. The grace of God is what he has done for us, quite apart from us. Whether we loved him or not, knew him or not, accepted him or not, this is what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. By the grace of God, you've been saved. You know, Jesus didn't come when you were lovely. He came when you were unlovable. Jesus didn't die for you when you got your act together and you were righteous. Jesus died for you when you were a sinner. Jesus didn't pour out his blood uh, at the moment when you, you, you had all the answers. He poured out his blood for you when you had nothing but questions, doubt, and confusion. Jesus was not raised from the dead because we had appointed a committee and decided it would be a good thing to do. Christ was raised for the dead, from the dead from, uh, for our blessing and our salvation because of the deep, profound mercy of the Father. This is the grace of God. It is all in Him. We don't add to it. We don't reshape it. We don't take it and run with it. It's all God's doing. And that's what Paul is saying. He said, by grace you've been saved through faith. All you do is accept it. All you do is just invest your life in it. You just trust in the promises of God. You're saved by grace through faith. And that not of yourselves is not of works, lest any man should boast. You didn't do it. You can't brag about it. You can just praise God for it. We're created. Created to be conformed to the image of God's dear Son. We're created for as His workmanship to praise and glorify the Father. He says that, that's what salvation is about. So that's what he's, he's done here in Galatians. He's put that gospel, that authentic gospel forward. And I think he does that so that the Galatian readers will have that assurance that it is grace, grace, grace. Nothing but grace, grace alone, appropriated by faith. And that's why we have spent all these months reading through the letter to the Galatians, that you would know it is grace in your life. It is grace and nothing but grace the whole way. Now, that's sort of setting the, 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 the tale as, as, as we go into uh, the last uh, paragraphs of, of, of the letter to the Galatians. I want to start at, at verse 11 in chapter 6. I hope you have that in front of you. Um, and just understand that that, that that really is the underlying um, issue that Paul is dealing with. You know, how can you be sure about all these things? And he, he's gone through this marvelous exposition of the authentic gospel. And then in verse 11 he says, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Uh, anybody remember typewriters? All right. Uh, you know, used, used to be uh, you, you would type up a letter and there it would be in, in, a, in a nice printed format in front of you and you'd sign your name and then you would put P.S. and in your own handwriting you would write a personal note. You know, sorry I missed you at lunch yesterday or it was really good to be working with you, great to hear from you. you know, something like that. A personal note in your own handwriting. Well, when Paul uh, would, would write, if, if you will, the, the, the letters, uh, he would dictate them to a secretary. Secretary was called an amanuensis. Uh, the reason we call him an amanuensis is so that we have a big name to intimidate you with. 
Um, but he was just a secretary. And so the, the, the letter would be dictated to a secretary, and he would write it down, and obviously would have a good handwriting, um, like I do, Deb. Uh, and and you, you know, you'd be able to read it, and he would, he would write it out well. And then at the conclusion of the letter, um, many times Paul would say, look, I'm, I'm greeting you with my own hand. And just so they saw that personal aspect of the actual handwriting of Paul. And so he says, look, uh, look what large letters I'm writing with. And, and, and I suspect it's well possible from that verse 11 to the end of the letter, Paul is writing. Just, you know, not, nobody between him and the readers, not a secretary, uh, just Paul directly to them. That's how personal it is with him. He's summarizing what he's, what he's just said in this letter. He says, see, see the letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. Verse 12, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh. It is those who want to impress you it is those who want to have something to, to, to boast about, to, to say that they're really something great and, and wonderful. It is those who uh, want to make a good showing of the flesh, who would force you to be circumcised. And again, that represents keeping the whole law. And only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Paul said there's two reasons why these guys are, are coming at you. And one of them is they just want to brag about it. They just want a good showing. That's one of the things that will cause you to doubt. You look around and say, well, look at all these giants, you know, all these wonderful uh, giants of the faith and these believers. I, I could never attain to that. And, of course, you know what the giants of the faith are doing. They're looking around and saying, look at all these giants of the faith. I could never attain to that because you know, we, we sort of read that into it. You say, you, you, they, they just want a good showing. They want something to boast about, he'll say later on. They just want to brag about something. Folks, have you ever thought about how silly it will be to brag in heaven? You know, we, get, we get before the Father's throne and we're singing his praises and I, I just turn to the guy next to me, hey, you know something? God's lucky to have me. You know, I, I did great things there on earth. You know, I, I, I was just really a good guy. Sure, certainly better than, than you were. You know, what is the Father going to say on the throne? Wow, Wayne, you know, come up front here. No, I think at that moment he's going to say, depart from me, I never knew. I mean, do you, know, do, you, do you have any idea how silly it would be to even think about heaven as a place where we brag about ourselves? You know, and, and obviously we're not going to measure up to Jesus, but we can certainly be better than the next guy. And that's what Paul's saying. He said they, they just want to be able to turn to you and say, well, we, we won you over to our point of view. We must be really great things. And, and so they, they sort of feel validated because they've, 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 they've uh, just sort of drawn these Galatian readers into their own way of thought. He said they, they're doing this just so they have something to boast about. They just want to make a good showing. That's nuts. Doesn't make any sense. Why would they think God would be impressed with that at all? He said the other reason is they want to avoid persecution. Um, what that means is uh, uh, the uh, Jewish religion was accepted by the Roman Empire as a legal religion. Here's why that was important. When the Romans took over Palestine and the area of the Jews and the, the Jews in the diaspora began to populate the, uh, the, the Roman world, uh, the Jews had these annoying habits. And one of the things they did was they went around telling everybody, you know, your God is a false God. He's not even a, a really a God. There's only one God, the true and living God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, and everybody was a little bit upset at that to be told that your God is no God. There's only one God, and he's our God. And uh, you can understand uh, that uh, the pagans around them thought, well, that, that's 
seems pretty cheeky. And so they, they, there would be these persecutions against the Jews. And then the Jews had this habit of taking a day off every week. A whole day off every week. Can you imagine? What lazy folks. But they, they wouldn't do any work. And they would just take the day off and they would have a holy day. Holiday. And the rest of the pagan world, they're working every day of the week. They have a few holidays every now and then. But by and large, they're working every day of the week. And look at the Jews, and they're, you know, these bums aren't working. So they didn't like that either. And so there was this, this tendency of the Romans to, to come in and to try and get the Jews to behave and to play ball with everybody else. And as the people of God, they wouldn't. In fact, they would rise up in rebellion, they'd take to the hills, and they'd make life miserable for the Roman armies that they sent against them. They'd bloody their nose, and finally the Romans figured out it would be easier just to say, fine, you can have your synagogues, just don't bother the rest of us. We declare you a legal religion. And so that, that's what had happened. Uh, the Jews were declared a legal religion. Now, when Christians came along, uh, they started out by worshiping in the synagogues. And as they worshiped in the synagogues, everybody looked at them, the, the Greeks and the Romans looked at them and said, ah, uh, they, they're just a kind of Jew, uh, therefore they're, they're legal. But as the conflict in the synagogue came to a head uh, over the person of Jesus Christ as the Messiah, as the Son of God, and the Christians were expelled from the synagogue, then the Christians began worshiping in the homes, and they began establishing the church as a separate entity, and the Christians came under persecution. Well, it was kind of a, a tempting thing to say, well, not so fast, we're actually still in the synagogue, and retreat back to the wall. The book of Hebrews is about this, for example. And so Paul says, these guys are coming after you, one, so that they can brag about how great they are, and the second reason they're coming after you is so they can avoid the persecution that comes when you identify with Jesus Christ and Christ alone. It's sort of like the persecution you will encounter when you tell people that it's not good enough to be a good person. You know, that God isn't interested in being basically a good person. That God's interest is... And it is our salvation in Jesus Christ. And there is no other name whereby we must be saved. You know, you start saying things like that, you'll encounter persecution. So Paul says, these guys, they're coming after you. They're trying to give you this law uh, because they, they want to brag about it and because um, they want to avoid persecution. Um, and so as a Galatian reader, uh, uh, believer, you're, you're hearing this and you're beginning to doubt, you know, what's going on? Did Paul give us a straight story? What's the gospel really all about? Uh, and, and so we get to verse 13. It says, for even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. And uh, j just go and read Romans uh, chapters uh, 2 and 3 uh, to get a sense how keeping the law will not, will not save us. Um, but he says, um, even those who are circumcised, they, don't, they themselves don't keep the law. Uh, they desire you to be circumcised that they may boast, again, boast in your flesh. And then Paul says in verse 14, but far be it from me. So that, that's what they want to do. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world was, has been crucified to me and I to the world. See, Paul's... Remember 2.20? Back in 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. Christ lives in me. That's grace. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
the end of the letter, he returns to where he began with the grace of God in Christ Jesus. We, we, we'll look at that verse perhaps more later on. But, but basically, he says, these guys are coming to boast in themselves and their religion. He says, the only thing I have to talk about is Jesus Christ. Now we're starting to get a hint of how the Galatian believers are called to have assurance and certainty of their salvation. It's not through religion. And it's not through law. It's not through the external works that, that we might do. I mean, um, we, we live for Christ in response to his grace, but we don't earn his grace by living for Christ. The grace comes first. So Paul says, it's not by law, it's not by religion, it's not by stuff you're going to do. He says, look, I'm, I'm not even going to talk about anything except Jesus Christ and the cross, whereby I'm crucified. Now Christ lives in me. But then look at verse 15, and th this is sort of where I wanted to, to wind up this, evening, uh, this morning. It says, for neither circumcision counts for anything. So being religious isn't going to count for anything. Nor uncircumcision. In other words, that's not even the issue. You're missing the point. You're missing the whole point if you think it's about good deeds and keeping the law and, and trying to satisfy God and working real hard so he'll pay attention to you. You know, that, that's the kind of thing we go through when we're going through those spells of self-doubt and wondering, you know, how could God love me? I'm just not doing enough. I'm not doing enough. I'm not doing enough. Since that's not even the issue, what is the issue? A new creation. Do you see that? That's all, a new creation. Behold, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things are become new in Christ. That's what it's about, a new creation. Look, you can't make yourself a new creation. There's not five easy steps to making yourself a new creation in Christ. God is the creator. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is the only creator, and he's the only one who can make us a new creation, not a refabricated creation. Yeah. Not sent to the factory, have a few bolts tightened up, a new belts put on in a gasket, but rather we are a totally new creation in Christ Jesus, and that is what God does in us. Where is our assurance? It is in this, that God has made us a new creation in Christ. He's working in us by his grace, conforming us to the image of his dear son. And none of it depends upon our feelings, our emotions, or our intellect. It solely depends on the grace of God in Christ Jesus. Now, that's why it's blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. That's why if, if, if you ask the believer, where's your, where's your confidence in salvation? It's not in the fact that I cleaned up my act and I became a good person. It is that Jesus Christ lifted me up out of the dust and said he did not condemn me any longer. And that I have new life in him. And our confidence is the fact that God, the Father, demonstrates his love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Look, if Christ died for you while you were a sinner... How much more so that you are a child of God, he will hold you in safety and protection and keep you in the hollow of his hand. Yeah. Jesus said, the sheep, my sheep, they know my voice. They follow me. And no one plucks them out of my hand. He says, the Father, he knows this sheep. He knows, he knows who you are. He knows who are his own. And no one plucks them out of his hand. He said, look, you can't jump out and nobody can take you out. You're held in the hollow of the hand of God, and he does not lose track of his own. 
And our assurance is right at that point. That's the grace of God. That's why we've been talking about grace. It's grace to begin with, it's grace to continue with, and it's grace to bring us to the conclusion and the consummation of our salvation. It is all the grace of God in Christ Jesus. See, our God is mighty to save. Not, you know, my God is mighty to save if I give him, you know, a little help. Or my God can save as long as I get the ball rolling. Or my God can save as long as I fill in the, the, the blanks. Or my God can save as long as, as I'm able to show him how to. My God is able to save. He's mighty to save. He knows who his own are. And he hangs on to him. And he'll never let you go. This morning, brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm praying that you'll have the confidence of that salvation. You know, I, I love that hymn we sang a moment ago. I, I don't need any more arguments. Yeah. There was a time when I thought I needed arguments. I don't need any more arguments. I don't need any more pleas. It's enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. That settles it. That's our confidence. That's our assurance. And our God, who is mighty to save. Pray with me, if you would, please. Father, when we pray so often, we tell you what's happening in our lives and we describe what's going on inside our hearts. You already know. Before the foundation of the world, you already knew. And you sent Christ to be the perfect answer for every life and every heart and every situation. Father, before we even turned to you, you were, you were drawing us to you by the power of your Holy Spirit. Father, what grace that you have done it all in Christ. Give us the courage of faith to rest in your hands, to rely upon your power and your grace, to live every day joyfully confident in your love for us. Father, for the believer here, I pray for the consoling, comforting, encouraging work of your Spirit. For the one who does not know Jesus, let these moments become a, a time of challenge, of conviction, conversion, and confession. Father, for your glory, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.